I want to talk with you this morning about Christian unity. And I don't think I have to convince you that unity is a relevant theme. Do I? It's always especially relevant in the church. So God's purpose in Jesus Christ is to create a new humanity. Here's the way that the Apostle Peter describes the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that they may announce the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God is not in the business of saving isolated individuals who can become better isolated individuals. Through Jesus, God is rescuing a people for himself. He's reconciling divided peoples for himself. So when the church is fractured and when its people are divided, the church actually betrays who it is, what it's called to be, and it betrays Jesus, its Lord. So unity in Jesus is one of the main themes of Paul's letter to the Galatians, the letter that CJ read for us. So one of the ways that God created a new people in Jesus was by removing ethnic rights as requirements for entry into a relationship with him. Okay, so this is really strange for us as modern Americans to, to understand. The only reason it's strange, though, ironically, is because we've been so influenced by Christian faith at a deep cultural level. Christianity has been so successful in our culture that we don't even understand this as an issue. In the first century, though, even more recently than that, ethnicity and national identity were everything, including religion. So for Jews, this meant you had to be circumcised and follow their law to be in relationship with the creator God, the God of Israel. But Jesus, the son of God, comes and says that his death will open a new way into a relationship with God that goes, shoots across ethnic boundaries through forgiveness, reconciliation to God and to humanity, new life. So again, I, I know this doesn't sound new to us, but, I th but think about how incredible it must have been. This is actually what, uh, funny enough, this is what the whole American project is based on in a way. The idea that people from any nation can come and be a part of this one, can receive a new life and a new identity. Do you know where that language comes from? The language that we use every day as Americans, you know where that comes from? It comes from Christianity. We wouldn't have it without Christianity. So this is what this ancient letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, is about. How do you receive new life and a new identity? How do you become a part of the people of God? So non-Jews in this, this place of Galatia have believed in Jesus have believed that his death has achieved from, for them the forgiveness of their sins and a new life and new relationship with God. But Jews are now telling them that they have to go a step further. They have to become circumcised. They have to follow the law. And Paul is telling them, without mincing words, absolutely not. 
He even has some colorful suggestions for the people who are recommending it that we didn't read this morning. If you think the Bible can't be fun, you need to read more. The problem, the problem, Paul will say, with trying to use those ethnic exterior markers as a way to achieve salvation and a reconciliation between man is that they don't cut it. They don't actually achieve a reconciliation. At the deep heart level, people stay divided, despite any external markers that you may create. Because having the same marks on your body does not mean that you're automatically going to love people better. It doesn't. If that were the case, every married couple should get their names tattooed on each other, right? But you can ask people who've done that, And there's no evidence that actually helps them love each other better and helps them stay together, right? Anybody, any couple have their names tattooed on each other? You you don't want to volunteer that information? Okay. (laughs) The point is, it's still going to be tough. So the first verse that CJ read for us, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this. Some people are still just getting that, I think. The thing about the tattoos being on each other, is that right? (laughs) Oh, oh, you were. Okay, volunteer. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Back to it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So basic Christian faith is that if you count on anything other than Jesus to save you, you will live a kind of slavery. If you count on anything other than the sacrifice of Jesus to save you, to redeem you, to make you the person that you're supposed to be, you will become a slave. You will become a person you don't want to be. Slavery is a theme that runs through the, through the whole story of God. Because of the fall, humans have become slaves. We've become slaves. And our slavery separates us from God. It separates us from ourselves in a strange way. And it also separates us from each other. It destroys unity. We become slaves to our wor- worst impulses. On our own... We become sort of like the water. Picture the water draining out of the bathtub. We live in this slow or sometimes fast downward spiral of slavery. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and it just keeps getting worse? One passive aggressive or aggressive comment after the other. You just can't help yourself. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. That doesn't happen to any of you, does it? You know the sense that you can't help saying something that you know you shouldn't say? That's slavery. That's what that is. But the movement of God for his people is toward freedom. He sets his people free from slavery in Egypt. And then he gives them a law, strangely, to keep them from becoming slaves again. To protect them. Live this way, and you will remain free. Ironically, it becomes a kind of slavery because they find themselves over and over again unable to live up to it. So in the next stage of God's story, he sends Jesus 
who lives the only fully human life. He fulfills God's law in every way. And then he dies a sacrificial death. And through baptism, Paul is going to say, people are joined to Jesus' life and death. They die to the law, to the commandments they can never live up to, but are set free by the Spirit of Jesus to be new people. So this is the freedom that Paul is talking about. The freedom to be new people. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But the problem is that we are always surprisingly quick to go back to slavery. We'll do it in an instant. We know this to be the case about us. There are the glaring examples, okay? Someone with an addiction uh, will go back to an addiction, even though they know it's destroying them. We've, a lot of us have seen this or heard of this in very sad ways. They might not even want to, but it feels so powerful that they, they, they don't feel they're able to resist it. And all of us have versions of this, even though they might be less glaring. We all go back to all sorts of enslaving behaviors, sexual sin, anger, bitterness. We go back to it over and over again, don't we? gossip, or even self-hatred. Paul is telling the people, it, it takes standing firm in the freedom that Christ has given you. The new life, the new identity, don't take it for granted. You have to stand firm in it and do not return to your old ways. Don't start counting on something else again to save you because that will only become another kind of slavery for you. And then he tells them, what they should do instead. And here's where we see the theme of unity explicitly. This is verses 13 and 14 of Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law can be summed up in a single commandment, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is the opposite of slavery? Is it the ability to do whatever you want and follow your impulses wherever they may lead? No. The opposite of slavery is to offer yourself in love and service toward others. Again, the, the commandment to love may sound like really familiar territory to modern Americans but it didn't actually emerge out of thin air as an ideal that we should all live up to it. The commandment to love, the reason we understand this as Americans and we talk about it so much is because Christianity has been so successful in our culture. This is the first place that love became a central virtue is out of the life of Jesus, summarizing the commandments of God. And so... Paul, after commanding them to love, does something that doesn't sound very loving to modern ears. He tells them the things they should not do. He warns them against divisive behaviors, what he calls behaviors of the flesh. If you continually bite and devour one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another, he says. And he, says, he goes on to say the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, 
depravity, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish rivalries, dissensions, factions, envying, murder, drunkenness, carousing, and similar things. I'm warning you, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about that list, but we're not going to. Here's the thing that I want you to notice about this list this morning. These are all behaviors that serve the self in some way, and they divide you from other people. They destroy unity. So sexual immorality, for example. Sexual immorality is sexual behavior that is in service to self. The self is preeminent. Fulfill my desires. Not a sexual sexuality that's in service to another, in love for someone else. Sorcery is religion that is in service to self. How do I find out about myself and my life? How do I get God to take care of me and only me? The other behaviors are explicitly relational behaviors. So there's hostilities, there's strife, there's jealousy, there's selfish rivalries. On and on they go. They are the opposite of unity. The flesh, Paul is saying, it causes us to serve ourselves at the expense of others. And as Paul says... Those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we have to sit with this for just a minute. This is not the case of the, uh, a case of the Bible being mean or oppressive to people. It's fashionable right now to think that morality can be a matter of preference. And, but, and if that's the case, if, if morality is a matter of preference, what Paul says here is, is on the level of hate speech. You, you will not inherit the kingdom of God because of you, who you are, how you're behaving. But notice that what Paul is saying is that there's a kind of natural consequence to our lives. If you practice behaviors that isolate you from others, from other image bearers of God, you will find yourself isolated in the end. Separated from God and from man. What Paul is saying here is that there will not be room in God's kingdom for behaviors like these that divide you from people. So his stern warning is intended to say, you need to stop doing these things now so that you don't miss out then when God's kingdom comes in full. He is warning that there's a real possibility that you can miss out on God's kingdom. And we should not forget that. But Paul follows by describing something beautiful, the fruit of God's Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, Paul says, you will bear these fruits. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I want you to notice the contrast between these behaviors, the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruits of the flesh. 
While the flesh leads to behaviors that divide people against one another, the fruits of the Spirit are meant to drive people toward one another. They are all positively relational. Love occurs between people. It's not an isolated behavior. Joy is enhanced in the presence of others. Our, my brother and sister-in-law, they've been um, unable to have children for the last 10 years. And this week, they signed the papers on a baby that was just born, had been, um, uh, the, the mom was addicted to heroin, and so the baby has been going through withdrawal symptoms. The mother was terrified to sign the papers because she was afraid her other children would also be taken away from her. And so it was up in the air for the last two weeks, even after the baby was born. And this week they signed the papers. And after 10 years of not being able to have children, they're holding this infant. And, and it's their son. They named him Theodore, gift of God. It's It's beautiful. But the joy is full because it's with others. It's the fruit of being together in relationship. It's a gift. Patience. Oh, patience, we need it for ourselves, but we usually need it much more with others. Self-control caps off the list of the fruits of the Spirit because self-control is what keeps us from those other divisive behaviors fits of rage, the, the sort of sectarianism that develops when we disagree with people and we criticize them. All of these fruits, we need to be careful that we identify them specifically as the work of the Holy Spirit who is given to us when we're joined to Jesus through faith and through baptism. Meaning, you cannot force these behaviors in your life. Paul's not saying, you need to go conjure these behaviors up. No. He's saying, you need to live by the power of the Holy Spirit who is given to you by the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And when you allow the, the Spirit to work in your life, He will be a channel of all these behaviors. This is the gracious work of the Holy Spirit that produces these behaviors. Now you do have to find ways practically of repeatedly relinquishing the control of your life over to God and to the Holy Spirit. Grace is not opposed to effort. This is what Andrew was saying earlier. We, we are saved by the grace of God, but then we must live into His grace. And the daily way to do this is to open our hands before God in prayer to set aside specific time that is to offer ourselves to God and say, my life is yours, it is not mine. And to let that time be a channel in which His grace flows into our lives. So the personal question that comes out of all this is, are you living into the work of God's Spirit in your life? Or are you living by your flesh? Are you surrendering to your flesh? Or are you surrendering to God's Spirit? A way that you can discern this is, are you being driven toward others in love? Or are you seeking to isolate yourself from others? 
Are you finding yourselves constantly, yourself constantly angry at others? Or are you finding yourself praying for others and seeking others in your life? You know, the reality is that when we live isolated from others, it actually diminishes us too. It's not a fruitful way of life. It's not the life that we want to live. And so even if you're not a Christian, I would invite you into this to say, this is the most beautiful way to be human, to live by the work of the Holy Spirit so that you can begin to exhibit true love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can't generate these all of your own power. You need God's help. And so Christian or non-Christian, won't you come to Jesus, the one who wants to be your helper, and tell him that you need his help? Now, I want to apply this more broadly to us as a church in the moment in which we live. Unity is the work of Jesus, the working out of his salvation in our lives as he overcomes our flesh by the work of the Holy Spirit. Unity is what happens when our natural impulses, all our fleshly reflexes, are transformed by the Spirit. And the fruit of this is something beautiful, love, joy, peace, patience, all these things. Even the way that Paul writes it is actually beautiful. Now, a couple weeks, well, about a month ago, when the Supreme Court um, thing leaked about the possible decision for Roe v. Wade, I made some comments about that on the next Sunday. I mentioned that the church has always held to this, the value of life, even in the womb. That that life is indeed sacred. And actually, the Anglican Church in North America, which we're a part of, within our very constitution of our church, it calls all members and clergy, in quote, to promote and respect the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death. So please hear me saying to you, if you're a part of our church, this is very important to us. If you're not a part of our church, we want you to see that, that, that this is true. That this is beautiful, that every life would be held as sacred. But we know and we understand to some extent that this is not held by everyone. And we know that this has brought our nation that was already divided against itself into a greater place of division. One of the things that's very important to me as a pastor is that our church develops a posture that embodies these fruits of the Spirit toward the world in the midst of its division. Us resorting to the behaviors of the flesh just because we disagree will not help the world see our view as better. So I I want to share with you a, a quote from a guy named Ross Douthat, who is a wonderful writer, a faithful Catholic man, and he wrote about this um, just yesterday in an article commenting on the, the decision. In any great controversy, he says, people are swayed to one side or another, not just by the rightness of a particular position, 
but by whether that position is embedded in a social vision that seems generally attractive, desirable, and worth siding with and fighting for. People are swayed to one side or another, not just by the rightness of a particular position, but by whether that position is embedded in a social vision that seems generally attractive, desirable, worth siding with and fighting for. Church, do we believe that life is sacred? Absolutely we do. But we are called to be a people that in our unity, our love for one another, and in our love for the world that God created, we seek to display the goodness and the love of God. And so our job is not just to stand up and say, this is right, while that is part of it. Our job is also in our life together to show why it's right. To display the kind of love, the kind of generosity that shows why we believe that life is sacred. And it is good that life is sacred. So my prayer is that every pregnancy center in America is bombarded by churches and by Christians in the next week saying, what do we need to do to help? Every adoption agency has a list that, that is just goes on and on of family saying, we're willing to adopt whatever child needs a home. What are the ways in which God will call his people to sacrifice so that we can show that this really is good? That is the job of the church. And so God calls his people into a beautiful kind of unity that is the outworking of the salvation of Jesus within our lives, redeeming us, reconciling us to one another, and then leading us to lay our lives down for the sake of the world, for the sake of the salvation of others. And so you, what are the ways that God is calling you out of the work of his spirit to lay your life down in love and kindness and goodness for the sake of people around you, for neighbors, for family members, whoever it may be, to display the fruits of the spirit, to represent the church of Jesus that is a holy nation and a people of his, possession, his own possession that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. That's the work of the church. Amen.